Three weeks ago, we studied a series of verses that we found in Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of that famous discourse of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we're going to turn once again to that same celebrated Sermon of Jesus. This time, we'll give attention to a passage that is much near the beginning of Jesus' discourse. The Sermon on the Mount begins in the Gospel of Matthew and in the fifth chapter. And so I'd like for us to turn there this morning and hear what Jesus has to say in verses 14 through 16. So Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all Who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Father, teach us now what it means for us, the disciples of Jesus, to be the light of the world. Give us courage to be that. And let us today draw again from your light that we might shine just a little brighter for you. Help us, speak to us now from Matthew 5, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are the light of the world. There are a few things actually that are more important to the world and to our own daily lives than light. Just think, for instance, what our lives would be like apart from the light of the sun. The rays of the sun actually are just about as vital to our existence as our oxygen and water and food, aren't they? As God has currently constituted our universe, we could not long exist, actually, without the light of the sun. It's the light of the sun, first of all, that enables us to see where we're going and what we're doing all throughout the day. And it's the light of the sun that causes the plants to grow, which in turn provide oxygen for us to breathe and some of them food for us to eat. What we do, how would we live without these things? If the sun were to go black and there was no light for seeing and no plants for producing oxygen and vegetables for eating, We can't actually live without the light of the sun. And Psalm 84 tells us the Lord God is a sun. The Lord God is like the sun. And the Lord Jesus, Hebrews 1, is the radiance of his glory. He is the one who, like the sun in the sky, keeps us alive, isn't he? He is the one who, like the sun, enables us to see He is the one who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And therefore, rightly does Jesus say of himself in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. But here in Matthew 5, he looks at his disciples, including the disciples sitting in these pews this morning, and he says to us, you are the light of the world. That should be interesting to us. I am the light of the world. 
We get that. We praise God for that. But now Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Of course, we're not the light of the world in the same way that Jesus is. He is like the radiance of the sun shining in all of its brilliance and providing life to the earth. And we are not that. But we are still, in some ways, the light of the world, he says. We're like lamps in a dark house, verse 15, scattering light. Or, verse 14, we're like a well-lit city on a hill, beckoning travelers to its safety in the black of night. And that sort of light, even though it's not nearly as powerful as the light of the sun, the light of a lamp, the light of a city off in the distance is incredibly valuable, isn't it? Especially when it's dark. When I was in my early 20s, my friend Charlie and I would sometimes go walking in the Holly Springs National Forest in North Mississippi. And I still remember those trips with fondness, enjoying the stillness and the solitude, wading in the coolness of a stream that was there, talking together about real things. But one day... In particular, we stayed out a little bit later than I would have preferred to do. And as we were making our way back to the truck, night was already falling upon us. In fact, the last little bit of the walk back was made in almost pitch black darkness. And if you've been out in the country in a place like a national forest, pitch black darkness is pitch black darkness. And I have to tell you that as a certified city slicker, I was quite unnerved by it all, out there in the wild with no buildings in sight, no street lamps anywhere, no flashlight in hand, and who knows who or what might be out there, right? I played it cool, of course. I didn't tell Charlie how nervous I was, and hopefully he won't hear this sermon on the website. But I was just a little bit scared, to tell you the truth. It can get really dark out in the countryside like that. And that pitch black back country is a picture of the world in which we live. Mankind, because of our sin, has plunged the world into a spiritual darkness, even a darkness which may sometimes be felt. Now, the Lord God is still a sun and shield, isn't he? Jesus is still the light of the world. But, says Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light. And so it's darkness for those who don't know Christ. Or, as the Apostle John puts it, The light shines in the darkness... Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John chapter 1. In other words, the men and women and boys and girls of this world are walking in the same sort of blackness spiritually that engulfed me that night in the national forest. Lost mankind cannot see his own hand in front of his face when it comes to the realm of spiritual truth. And why not? Why does the human race walk in darkness? Why do we not comprehend the light? Well, this is the judgment, John chapter 3, that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So men and women walk in darkness. They do not see the light of Christ. They do not understand God and they don't know where they're going spiritually because they actually love the darkness rather than the light. They do not see the light because they will not see the light. And we might think, well, that's the end of the story right there. There is light in the world. The Lord God is a sun and shield. He has sent His Son to be the light of the world. He's given us His Word to shine forth His truth. But people simply love the darkness rather than the light. And they don't want to come to the light and have their evil exposed. And so what's the use of trying to tell them about the light if they don't want it in the first place? And if they'd rather keep their sins covered up in the darkness? It seems like the conclusion we might come to, right? People don't come to the light on their own, and so what can we do? Well, the book doesn't close on this subject quite so easily, does it? Yes, men love the darkness rather than the light, and yet Matthew 5, 14 through 16 is not here for no reason, is it? Jesus doesn't call us to be lights in the world to no purpose. Somehow, this passage tells me somehow... Even though men love the darkness rather than the light, somehow our little flickering candles, our dimly burning wicks, can be used by the Holy Spirit as part of His plan to change people's minds and hearts. This little light of mine, as the songwriter Harry Lowe's called it, this little, little light of mine can somehow get the attention of men and women and boys and girls so that they turn, verse 16, and glorify our Father who is in heaven, so that they turn and praise the God from whom they have so long been hiding, so that they come out into the light. This little light of mine in the hands of the Holy Spirit can do that, and so can your light. You are the light of the world. He has put you on this planet. If you belong to Jesus, He has put you on this planet. He has turned you around. He has redeemed you and saved you and put you in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your school building and in your family and in that doctor's office and in that airplane seat and with the children's Sunday school class and on that ball team, all so that you can be as light in those places, shining in the darkness. You are the light of the world. You are the little lantern that God is going to use. He's going to set it on the table where you work or where you live to help people realize how good it might be actually not just to have that little light shining, but to step out into the full rays of the sun. And though you cannot see this in the English of verse 14, I should point out to you that the word you at the beginning of verse 14 is plural. You can be singular, right? You and you and you and you. You can be plural. You. Well, here it's plural. You. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples as a group. You are the light of the world. So it's not just this little light of mine or that little light of yours that will draw people to Jesus, but sometimes all of our lights shining together like many candles in one great chandelier. 
That's one reason. It's not the only reason, but it's one reason why our corporate gatherings are so important. It's why we invite friends to our fellowship meals. It's why we want to get people to come to our Easter service next week. Yes, we want them most of all to hear God's word about God's son, but we also know that they will benefit from sitting in a room with dozens of little candles all burning together for Jesus at the same time. You, all of you who belong to Jesus, are the light of the world. And says Jesus, you are the light of the world. In other words, God doesn't have a plan B after his church for attracting people into his light. He doesn't have another chandelier. He doesn't have another lampstand that he's waiting to pull out of storage if you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, don't burn as brightly as we should. God is not building another city on another hill somewhere filled with another group of people to which he will attract lonely travelers if the city of his church is not lit up and welcoming. No, the church is the the light of the world. The light. God is not going to send his angels to come down and preach and live a gospel testimony in our place. We are it. We are the light of the world. And notice also that Jesus says you are the light of the world. Present tense. Not just you can be the light of the world, or you should be the light of the world. Not even just you must be the light of the world. You are already the light of the world. You may be a bright light or a dim light. You may be a conspicuous light or you may be a hidden light. But whatever kind of light you are, you are the light of the world. You are the testimony for Jesus in your neighborhood and in your family and in your workplace. You are emitting a witness for him whether you think you are or not. You are the example of Jesus in front of your children and to your extended family. Whether you're pleased with that example or not. You are the light that they have been given. You are, for better or worse, the testimony of Jesus in the darkness of this world. There's no getting around it. People are looking at you, Christian, as an example of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And if that's true, if you are going to be the example, whether you like it or not, whether you're a good example or a poor example, don't you want that your example would be the best kind possible? Don't you want your light to burn as brightly as it can? If we can borrow from Jesus' analogy in verse 13, we don't want our salt to become tasteless, and we don't want our light to become dim. Nor do we want our light to be covered over so that no one can see it. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I mentioned before how marvelous it is at nighttime as you approach our city from the south to come around that last bend in the interstate and suddenly see this great city lit up like tinsel spreading out in the valley below. You've seen it, right? I'll never forget the first time Toby and I saw it as we arrived in town late that first Friday night when I came to interview to be your pastor. I didn't know how close exactly we were to the city. We knew it was coming, but all of a sudden we came around the bend and there it is. It's a beautiful thing. But as beautiful as downtown Cincinnati is, sitting beneath the hills, and as wonderful as that surprise is when you come around the corner, it's not exactly how we want our testimony for Jesus to be, is it? 
Because you can imagine a pioneering family living before the days of of GPS and before the days of mile markers along the road and signs telling you how close you are and all these things. You can imagine a pioneering family 100 years ago maybe, 150 years ago, traveling, straggling through the darkness of night, hoping to make it to the city before bedtime where they might find an inn and a place of safety for the night, a dry place to sleep. And they're, they're coming, and they're coming, and it's dark. And they might actually only be a mile or two away and give up for the night and sleep out in the damp without ever realizing how close to the city they actually had come. Because the city's not on a hill, it's in a valley. And you don't know exactly how close you are. If the city were on a hill, they would have seen the light from a long way off. And they would have been filled with hope. And they would have quickened their pace that night and pressed on through the darkness and ended up with a warm, dry place to sleep. And so it is with a life lived for Jesus. People shouldn't have to be right on top of you before they can see your light shining. They should be able to see, even from a little bit of relational distance, that there's something different about you. They may not know exactly what it is at that distance, just like you can't make out all the buildings in a city when you're still five miles away. But you can see that there's light in the city, can't you? And when you're traveling in the dark, light is always hope-giving, isn't it? Even if you don't know all that it represents. And the men and women of this world are indeed traveling in the darkness, and they indeed need hope. They're traveling often with the cities of refuge few and far in between. In other words, they're traveling with the Christian testimonies around them, sprinkled really usually only here and there among their acquaintances. Many of the people you work with, many of the people in your family know very few real Christians. And so if we are the city that they're coming to, if we are the city that they see, we need to be up on a hill, don't we? We need to live in such a way that our testimony for Jesus is conspicuous. Not ostentatious, not drawing our attention to ourselves, not like the guy at the party who's always over-eager to tell you about all of his things in his life, right? Not that you have to always be right in people's faces, quoting things to them and telling them about your church, but your testimony does need to be clearly visible. You're different. Why are you different? Your testimony needs to be attractive, even to people who know you only somewhat casually, so that, like a city set on a hill, they can come to you even from a bit of a distance and know that there's hope there. You may be the light of the world, but the light, if it's placed down in a valley, will only do limited good. But in contrast, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The same principle is set forth also in verse 15, isn't it? Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So if you have a company come to your house, and they're staying overnight in the guest room, and the lights are out, and you're about to go to bed, I hope you don't say to them now, if you get thirsty in the night, feel around in the kitchen until you find the refrigerator. And when you find it, Open the door and there will be a little light inside. And you'll be able to see around the kitchen and find yourself a glass and find yourself a faucet. That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? To expect them to find and make use of the only little light in the kitchen that's actually behind closed doors? You 
turn the lamp over the, over the stove on, right? The, the lamp over the sink. Give them something that's high enough and open enough to use. But how often as Christians do we seem to leave it to people to dig around like that before they can see our light? If they get close enough, they'll, they'll know. I'll be able to tell them. They're not going to do it. They love the darkness, remember? So they're not going to expend a lot of effort digging around looking for your light. In other words, they're not usually going to just walk up to you and say, Hey, can you tell me about Jesus? And if they do that, it will almost assuredly be because something in your speech or your behavior or your character has already allowed them to see Jesus in you. They've already seen your light from a distance, and then they come up close looking for it more carefully. If people are ever going to ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, they're going to have to first see that there is, in fact, hope in you. And they will see that hope if and when you place your light, your testimony for Jesus, not under a basket or behind closed doors, but up on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Your testimony, if you can picture it in your mind, should be like the chandelier hanging from the ceiling or like the six-foot standing lamp in the corner that brightens the whole living room. Not like the tiny little light bulb that only comes on when someone peers inside the refrigerator. Let your light shine before men, verse 16, in such a way that they may see. Let your testimony for Jesus be conspicuous and public and therefore bright. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see. In fact, let me say that a small light that can actually be seen is better than the brightest lamp that's constantly hidden in the closet, right? A small little candle set out at night on the kitchen counter is better than the most high-powered LED flashlight that's closed up in the drawer. Now, I hope that is heartening to those of you who feel like all you have to offer by way of testimony for Jesus is just a small little candle, a dimly burning wick. God can use your little ember of faith if you will put it in a candlestick and set it up so as to be seen. In fact, when the power goes out from time to time, you might be surprised at how much can be done just by the flicker of one small candle. One little tea light set up in a, in a candelabra, set up on a stand, is better than a mag light stuffed away in the closet. Hear that well. Those of you who have great potential to shine brightly for Jesus, but who keep your light hidden from certain folks because of shame or fear or desire to be thought cool, bring the lamp out. However bright or dim you may feel it to be, bring the lamp out and put it on a stand. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see. Now, those words, in such a way that they may see, may trip us up just a little bit, some of us. Because they almost sound like Jesus is calling us to showmanship. And we've all seen religious showmanship that we don't like. And it sounds like Jesus might be saying, let me put, let me put my light up on a stand so that everybody can look at me. 
And you may say to yourself, doesn't Jesus speak exactly against such public displays in this very same Sermon on the Mount over in chapter 6? He does. Let me read to you chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then further down in verses 16 through 18, he says very similar things about fasting. Do it in secret, he says. Not for everybody to see. How do those warnings square with what Jesus says over in Matthew 5.16 about letting your light shine so that people can see your good works? Well, there are a couple of things worth noticing here as I think about the difference between Matthew chapters 5 and 6. The first and, and the most important, the most obvious, is the difference in motivation between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Motivation. In chapter 6, Jesus warns against praying and giving and fasting in such a way that people notice you. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Do not give to the poor, verse 2, in such a way as to be seen and honored by men. So the emphasis in chapter 6 is on being careful that you don't do what you do so that people will notice you and honor you and talk about you. But in chapter 5, Jesus speaks of letting your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And there's all the difference in the world between those two types of behavior, those two motivations. One person makes his religion public so that people will ooh and ah over his own commitment and his own sacrifice and his own gifts. The other person lives out his faith in the public eye, maybe almost embarrassed by any personal attention that it brings, but open with his faith nonetheless because he wants people to see the difference his father has made. In his life, he wants people to be attracted to the great sun from which he has lit his own little candle. So that's one difference. It's the main difference between the warning in chapter 6 and the encouragement in chapter 5. Am I living out my faith publicly in order that people will see me and talk about me? Or am I doing it so that they will see my father and talk about him? The other difference in these two chapters, it seems to me, and Jesus doesn't say this specifically, but I think if you think about it with me, you might agree that it it seems to me, anyway, that the kind of deeds that Jesus is talking about 
in chapter 6, the kind of activities that the hypocrites like to do in order to draw attention to themselves are actually quite easily put on. Again, Jesus doesn't make this distinction, but I think if we think about hypocrites doing things to be seen, they're going to do the things that they actually can do, the things that they can actually put on. Think about it. Prayer, giving, fasting. Anyone that can talk can make a show of prayer, right? Anyone that has a little bit of money in their pocket can give it away. Anyone can fast. And anyone can do these things, especially if people are going to fawn over them for it or put their name on a plaque with the platinum donors. You don't have to possess any spiritual life to perform outward religious duties, do you? Now, that, of course, doesn't make prayer and fasting and giving bad things in and of themselves. It's just to say that it's no wonder that these are the things that the hypocrites do to draw attention to themselves because you can be a hypocrite and still do them especially if they get your attention. But when Jesus in chapter 5 speaks of letting your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, I wonder if he has a different set of good works in mind, or at least some additional ones that aren't so easily performed on a merely outward level and which perhaps make an even deeper impression on those who see them. There are some aspects of the Christian life that are a lot harder to put on. Now, you may remember that in the context of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just finished in the first part of chapter 5 commending a host of Christian virtues that we call the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. And those Beatitudes, those Christian virtues, include the following. Poverty of spirit or humility, mourning, gentleness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, purity in heart, peacemaking and suffering for Jesus' sake. Those things, I submit to you, require a great deal more spiritual reality churning in the soul than the outward duties of praying in public, giving away money, and fasting from time to time. And I also submit to you that the Beatitudes, if we live them out, make a lot deeper impression on those who observe them. For example, who do you respect most at work? The guy who writes a big check when the collection is taken for the United Way every year? Or the fellow who is obviously humble and quickly forgives other co-workers and is willing to be made fun of for his faith without retaliation? Who impresses you more? Who makes a deeper impact on her office mates? The lady who keeps talking about what she's giving up for Lent? Or the young girl who spends her lunch break quietly reading the Bible, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Look again at the traits Jesus commends in verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I think these might be the kinds of character traits that we are to let shine before men in such a way that they may see. And I know that these are the kinds of traits which, when seen, glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because these things make us look like Him and like His Son. 
and because they show the deep down difference that he makes in the lives of his people. And let me say, living these things publicly usually doesn't come across as ostentatious and overbearing. It comes across as attractive. There's another such list in Galatians 5, isn't there? Verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let me read those again slowly, and you think about how well these things come through in your own testimony. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the kinds of things that ought to be conspicuous in our lives. These are the kinds of things that don't push people away because they think we're full of ourselves, but actually draw people to us because we're full of Jesus and of his spirit. We saw something similar in Philippians 4 a couple of weeks ago too, didn't we? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You live like that. You be a person of joy. You be a person of gentleness. You be a person who obviously is at peace. You be a person whose mind is on things that are good. You live like that in front of your classmates and co-workers and relatives and neighbors, and you won't have to worry that they are thinking of you as religiously ostentatious or trying too hard to make your faith public. You live like that, and you'll just be plain attractive, like a city on a hill on a dark, damp night. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And don't you want the people around you to glorify your Father who is in heaven? Doesn't that motivate you? Doesn't it give you incentive not to hide your faith, but to humbly display it in, in godly, attractive living? God gets glory when his people are different. And God receiving the glory that is due his name is the very reason we exist on the face of the earth, isn't it? Some of you learned that from the very first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our chief end. That's why we exist, to glorify God. And if God gets glory when our good works, when our character points others to Him, then we have every incentive in the world to bring the lamp out and put it up on the stand. We have every incentive in the world not to hide our faith, but to live it out, to live out the Beatitudes, to live out the fruit of the Spirit for all to see. We're not doing it in order to announce through a megaphone, hey, look at me. We're doing it so that people will be impressed with our Father and so that our little lights will begin to give people a hankering to step out into the full rays of the sun. 
let me just point out one way before we finish, one way that God gets glory and that people are attracted to his light when we put our little lights on the stand and live a conspicuous testimony for Jesus. When people begin to see that we are different, when people begin to see our poverty of spirit, our thirst for righteousness, our willingness to suffer for Jesus, when the light of our joy and our peace and our patience begins to dawn on them, When they become enamored with our good works, they will often be all the more ready to hear our good news. Many is a person who is finally able to hear the gospel and to really hear it and is eventually converted to Christ by it because her attention was first gotten by a Christian who was genuinely different. Many is a person who will be ripe to hear the good news because he has first been attracted to our good works. And that's the emphasis of this passage, by the way. Good works. Christian living more so than Christian preaching. Testifying by means of our works, not just our words. Now, that's not to say that words aren't important or that the good news is not important or that the actual words of the gospel are somehow secondary Not in the least. The words of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the good news is actually indispensable if people are going to come to the Lord. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? And so we must share the word of Christ. We must declare the good news, not merely give our testimony of good works. No one will ever be saved simply by observing our good works. They'll be saved when they hear the good word about Jesus. When they hear how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When they hear how he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. When they hear that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And how he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And how he always lives to make intercession for us. And that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the good news that people must hear and no one will be saved without it. And yet the reality is that our good works are often the very thing that lays hold of people's attention so that they will listen to our good news. We often get the opportunity to give an account for the hope that is in us because people have first seen the hope that is in us by means of our poverty of spirit or our purity in heart or our gentleness or our hungering and thirsting for righteousness, our love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. So cultivate these traits by means of a deep walk with God. Gather these traits into your heart like so many glowing embers by means of a profound fellowship with Jesus and a great dependence upon his grace. And then do not stuff them in your backpack when you step out on Monday morning. No, you are the light of the world, a city Set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.